So, just for the benefit of people who haven't been before, we are continuing with this theme that we've called Deepening Insight. And we've been looking into the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. And in this most recent series of talks, we've been focusing mostly on not self. So exploring where, when, how we get caught in clinging to experience, identifying with it, taking it personally. And the point of that is because as a general rule, to the extent that we cling to that same extent, we suffer. But when we can see clearly how that clinging and identifying is happening, we're in a better position to be able to release it and as a consequence experience more ease, more happiness, more peace, more freedom. So when I was here a couple of weeks ago, we continued this exploration of anatta or not-self by situating it in the context of the five clinging aggregates, which, as you may remember, the Buddha named in the First Noble Truth as a source of suffering. So I like to do the pop quiz thing just to see how much is staying in there. Who can remember what the first clinging aggregate is? Body. Body, thank you. Material form, including the body. And the second one? Feeling tones, yep. Very good. The third one? That's the fourth one, but back one. Perceptions, yes, third. And then fourth is volitional mental formations. And then the fifth is consciousness, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. So last time we were looking a little more closely at volitional mental formations. And I focused more on a particular type of mental formation the kind of thought that creates and reinforces a fixed sense of me. So we were looking specifically at I am thoughts, noticing how often our inner dialogue solidifies around a particular experience. And so we tell ourselves things like, I'm so angry, or I'm a highly anxious person. And that inner language unconsciously strengthens a solid identity out of that constantly changing flux of experience. So last time I was here, I invited you just to begin to notice when the language is going into that I am type thinking and to see if you can change that inner language so that it becomes more accurately reflecting of reality. So rather than I'm an angry person, Under certain circumstances, I have a tendency to get quite angry. Or simply, anger is arising right now. Whoa, (laughs) anger is like this, rather than I'm angry. Because even when I do that, I feel that sense of contraction and solidification. There's a lot more we could say about all that. But just for the sake of completeness, I wanted to at least touch in to the last of these five aggregates tonight which is consciousness. And 
After our session last week, we listened to part of a talk. Was it by Gil or by Guy? I can't remember. By Guy Armstrong. Thank you. And we had a bit of a discussion, and I was listening to the discussion, and I realized that we really need to define our terms here because words like consciousness, awareness, mindfulness, they mean slightly different things just to the people in this room, let alone within the broader Buddhist tradition or within the English language generally. And in the way we use the word consciousness in English, I think it sometimes have has connotations of being something special, consciousness. And we hear terms in some traditions like higher consciousness. But the way the Buddha's using the term consciousness in the context of the five clinging aggregates is actually pretty ordinary. It's just that basic knowing faculty of the mind. So throughout the day, we're knowing what's going on, right? On some level. We're not always mindful, but there's some basic level of awareness that's knowing sights and sounds and smells and tastes and physical sensations and mental activity. Those are the six sense doors in Buddhist thinking. And with when there's a visible form and a working eye and light and eye consciousness, we get seeing. And the same with each of the other sense doors. So in Buddhist thinking, there are six types of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, and so on. Because different parts of the mind specialize in knowing those different aspects of experience. And all beings have this basic consciousness. Newborn babies have consciousness. Children, adults, animals have consciousness. So consciousness is just that bare knowing of sense impressions. But as we were seeing over the last few weeks, from that we go into perception. We recognize, recognize what those sense impressions are. And then from the clinging aggregate of perception, we go into volitional mental formations. And that's what we were exploring with that shoe exercise, how perceptions compound into stories and views and opinions and beliefs and assumptions, narratives of all kinds. We start to construct a whole world of mental activity which, when there's no mindfulness, we tend to step into and inhabit as if it's ultimately real and true and always happening to me at the center of all of that. That is a fundamental delusion that we are creating ourselves rather than recognizing this is an impersonal process of body, heart, and mind working together. So to get a sense of how that process works, I'd like to read you a passage from Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness. He says, In the teachings of the aggregates, the Buddha gives special emphasis to understanding the impermanent conditioned nature of consciousness. As an example, a moment of seeing consciousness arises from the coming together of four causes, the working organ of the eye, a visible form, light, and attention. If any of these four conditions are absent, then seeing conscious can't 
seeing consciousness can't arise. And it's helpful to explore this conditioned nature of consciousness directly in our own experience as a way of freeing ourselves from identification with it. So, for example, when we're completely absorbed in some kind of activity and we don't hear what's going on around us, if there's an absence of attention to the sound, then hearing consciousness doesn't arise. So consciousness arises when the conditions come together to support it. But most of the time we think I'm being conscious rather than just recognizing because of all these things coming together, seeing arises, hearing arises, physical sensations arise. <laughs> Was that a spontaneous arising? <laughs> And there was consciousness of hearing and maybe self-consciousness. <laughs> so it's not under our control. Conditions bring these things together. It's impersonal. But as I said earlier, in English we sometimes use the word consciousness to mean awareness. And awareness is often used as a synonym for mindfulness. And awareness in some traditions, is spoken of as a sort of a higher level of consciousness. And we hear reference to universal consciousness or collective consciousness that we're somehow all connected to. So it's not surprising that we would get confused. In the early uh, strand of the Buddha's teachings, though, as far as I'm aware, there was not this sense of a higher consciousness Consciousness is just the function of the mind knowing a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, and so on. And I think where it does get confusing, though, is when we come to consciousness of mental objects. Because we can be conscious of qualities of the mind. I was offering that option in the guided meditation earlier. Notice, is mindfulness present or not? Is the mind contracted or open? Is it focused or scattered? And actually these are some of the instructions directly from the third establishment of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. Those of you who know the section on mindfulness of the mind, that's what we're invited to do. Recognize, is the mind with anger or not? Is it distracted or contracted? Is it expansive or concentrated and so on so consciousness itself is not the problem again it's the clinging to the aggregate that's the issue so how does clinging to consciousness show up of all the five aggregates this one is probably the most difficult to really recognize and it's sometimes referred to as the last holdout of clinging the last holdout of identification. Because I think most of us here have some sense that I'm not my body. My body is not completely under my control, much as I wish it to be. I can't stop myself from aging or getting sick. There's a lot of stuff going on in here that's is it autonomic. It's just happening regulated by itself. And we might recognize that suffering comes when we cling to this body 
and we identify it with in, term, in terms of our age or our shape or our sexual orientation or our skin color and so on, we might also recognize the suffering from clinging to feeling tone, our likes and dislikes, wanting what's pleasant, not wanting what's unpleasant. And a few weeks ago, we saw how perceptions and mental formations can be a source of clinging and identification, combining to form a sense of me with a history and a personality and all that kind of thing. So we might have had some capacity to see through clinging to these first four aggregates, but somehow within all that, there's still a sense of me in here. So this is how Guy Armstrong describes it in his book, Emptiness. He says, this is one more place that the I, in inverted commas, lays claim. I is sometimes felt as the observer of the whole show. It can feel as though there's a small entity located inside the head, just a couple of inches behind the eyes. And this being is the center of everything. It watches sights, it hears sounds, it smells odors, it thinks thoughts, it feels emotions. And this I seems to stay the same over time through many changing experiences. It appears to accomplish this by remaining separate from what's observed. It feels as though this observing I was with us in primary school, is here today, and it will be there just a couple of inches behind our eyes until we die. But the identification here as the observer is taking as I the activity of consciousness, that faculty of mind that receives or knows sense impressions that arise moment to moment. So consciousness might feel like a stable, permanent aspect of our experience, but the Buddha recognized that consciousness arises and passes with each new sense impression. And we can verify this through meditative insight. So just to highlight that last sentence, that this understanding gets verified through meditative insight. Because the intellect alone is not going to be able to figure this out for itself. And this is one of the challenges that actually this understanding can be quite threatening to the intellect, which for most of us operates according to deep patterns of needing to be in control. The intellect likes to figure everything out so it can keep itself safe, work everything out, and it becomes predictable. And to the intellect, the idea that there's no one in here in control can sound pretty terrifying. But the actual experience of this is very different for most people. It brings with it deep relief, ease, peace, freedom. Now, perhaps not all of you here have had a, a taste of that kind of freedom, but even in your everyday life and in your meditation practice, you can start to notice, as I was inviting you to do in the meditation, what's it like when the mind clings to experience and takes ownership of it, identifies with it, 
And what's it like when it doesn't do that? That we can start to recognize the difference between those two kinds of experience. And one way we can start to almost train in orienting to that relative ease is to notice again that inner language. So when I spoke about the I am thoughts, noticing how that mental language tends to create a stronger, more fixed and solid sense of self. And so some of you, I think Liz mentioned last week, being on retreat, and we often are given the instructions to change our inner language to what's known as passive voice construction. (coughs) So passive voice construction means taking the I out of the inner dialogue. And again, we were doing that in the guided meditation just before. So this is how Joseph Goldstein describes it. There are different perspectives that we can bring to the investigation of consciousness. We can reframe our experience in the passive voice. Because the language that we use to describe experience, even to ourselves, has a conditioning effect on how we experience things. Our usual linguistic construction is the active voice. I'm hearing, I'm seeing, I'm thinking. And the very language we use, whether spoken or not, reinforces the sense of the knower, the witnesser, the observer who is standing behind experience and receiving it all. So instead of noting our experience from the viewpoint of an observer, we can shift from active voice to passive voice. A sound being known, a thought being known, a sensation being known. And it's not that we need to continually repeat these phrases, but rather to just be directly in the experience of things arising and being known, moment after moment. And reframing in this way takes the I out of the description. So the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein expresses this succinctly when he says, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. The sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. First, we see that each moment of knowing, of consciousness, is arising simultaneously with a sensation, not a moment before, not a moment after. And second, we notice that that knowing arises spontaneously, There's no one commanding consciousness to arise. When the conditions are there, consciousness appears automatically. So we're not doing any of this. It's a completely impersonal process. And even though that might sound scary, as the intellect gets used to it and starts to loosen its grip, it's actually experienced as a relief. And so... As I was inviting you, check that out in your own experience throughout the day. When you get caught in clinging of some kind, get caught in identification with any of these aggregates, notice what that's like. And more importantly, notice when clinging releases. What's that like? And I'm sure every one of you here could name some experience of that release. 
when there's more ease, there's more spaciousness, calm, clarity, kindness, care, wisdom. Those are all symptoms that we're on the right track. And we can trust that releasing clinging on deeper and deeper levels leads actually all the way to the highest happiness, which is the peace of Nibbana. And this is a complete freedom that the Buddha discovered through his own practice culminating in liberation. And it's what we ourselves are training in moment by moment. And it's actually what we've been doing over these last few weeks and months of exploring these clinging aggregates. So now this series of talks is coming to an end. And I'd just like to thank you all for your attention over the weeks and months. And I hope that it has been supportive and that we will, all of us, learn how to release this clinging more and more fully so that we can taste that freedom of heart and mind for ourselves and for the benefit of all. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for being on this journey. And I hope it's beneficial for all of us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.